I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to RAIN's Essential Geopolitics podcast. My name is Emma Kami, and I'll be your host today. In recent years, the cyber insurance industry has changed drastically as it is sought to catch up with an expanding threat landscape and amid rising cyber-related costs. In particular, the outbreak of the Russian-Ukrainian war has heightened concerns around the malign use of cyber and where limitations on cyber insurance should be drawn. Here to shed some light on the topic is Ali Plutinsky, a cyber analyst at Rain. Welcome, Ali. Hi, it's great to be here today. Ali, a recent court ruling focused on the cyber insurance industry and the issue of coverage. Can you tell me about the verdict in the case pertaining to multinational pharmaceutical company Merck and the viral data wiper malware NotPetya that broke loose in June 2017? Yeah, absolutely, Emma. Um, and to your point there, the saga of NotPetya and this company that probably many of our listeners know about has been going on for several years now. Um, but the recent ruling that occurred on May 1st um, that came out of a New Jersey appellate court, it actually was upholding a prior ruling that related to the same case that had to do with the viral outbreak of this data wiper malware, not Patia, which happened in 2017 amid the hostilities in Ukraine along the eastern Donbass region that had, of course, predated the, the current war that's going on now. And during this time period, in around June 2017, Russian hackers actually deployed a, a malware that, <laughs> funnily enough, the cybersecurity um, sort of professional network ended up calling it not Patia because it was similar to another malware called Patia. And so to differentiate the two, this one was conveniently called not Patia. But uh, not Patia ended up actually having a much bigger effect. And even though it originally was just deployed against Ukrainian targets, um, the impact of it ended up reverberating globally. And this was sort of unprecedented because prior to this, period, there hadn't really been a malware to the same damaging extent. But the way that NotPetya worked was that it encrypted and, and damaged data and systems. And um, it ended up spreading to over 60 countries and causing an estimated $10 billion in damages. Um, and one of those companies, of course, that was affected was Merck, which had about 40,000 of its machines affected by the viral malware because it had an accounting software in its systems developed by a Ukrainian company that had originally been targeted, which gets into the issue of software supply chain attacks. But all this is to say is that the insurers wanted to refuse covering the damages that occurred to Merck's um, devices, which they estimated was $1.4 billion of damages. And the way that this insurance, that these insurers wanted to deny coverage was on the basis of what is called a uh, war exclusion clause, which have existed for a long time in various forms of insurance, but only 
began more recently being incorporated into cyber insurance policies um, in the mid to late 2010s. And what a war exclusion clause says is that insurers are not required to cover damages that are directly related to a hostile or warlike action. And while the language from policy to policy differs a bit, this is the general gist of it. Um, however, despite this war exclusion, what the Superior Court of New Jersey ruled was that no combat or physical attack had occurred in tandem with NAPTIA, and therefore a war exclusion would not apply, and therefore the insurers would have to cover the losses, which had a big reverberating impact on the insurance industry, which of course is now worried that they're going to have to pay out um, more of their clients during cyber incidences. Outside of war exclusions, how else have cyber insurance companies tried to limit the coverage or limit coverage or minimize their financial exposure to cyber incidents? That's a great question, Emma. Um, yeah, so again, to the point of war exclusion clauses, almost all insurers at this point have not only one, but usually an average of five to six stipulations that pertain to the war exclusion and and where and when um, these these insurers feel that they should be covering cyber-related damages. But some other things that we see is that a lot of cyber insurance companies have ramped up their requirements for base cybersecurity protocol, you know, requiring these companies to be undergoing regular software updates or implementing um, policies like multi-factor authentication for their clients. And this is essentially to make sure that companies are basically doing their own due diligence to ensure their, their cyber protection in order to minimize the overall likelihood of, of a cyber incident. Um, but one of the most interesting recent developments that we saw within the cyber insurance landscape was one of the um, top players, Lloyd of London's, announced in November 2022 that there's going to be a new new exclusion specifically for cyber attacks related to state-sponsored actors. Um, and this was a very big deal because there had there's not previously been any kind of cyber insurance clause pertaining to state-sponsored cyber activity, which is a little bit different than the war exclusion. Um, and it's important to note that the exact wording of this policy states that it that whatever cyber attack happened would have to be catastrophic for this exclusion to apply. And so it's important, you know, to clarify for listeners that um, the overall likelihood of this exclusion being applicable is, is very unlikely. However, um, you know, this sort of opens the floodgates now for whether or not other insurers will similarly try and um, limit their exposure to cyber attacks that are state-sponsored because those are becoming more frequent um, and cyber attacks in general are becoming more costly. And again, this is a way that we're seeing cyber insurers try and minimize their, their financial exposure. Um, but whether or not other insurers follow suit, we, we have yet to see. Where is uh, the cyber insurance landscape headed and how can organizations best protect themselves from cyber incidents with or without cyber insurance? Well, I think as the Russian-Ukrainian war continues and gets more pronounced in these coming months um, with the Ukrainian counteroffensive, 
we're we're definitely, I think, going to continue to see a rise in the frequency, scope, and associated damages of cyber incidences on a on a global level, not only pertaining directly to the Russian-Ukrainian war, but also in consideration of growing tensions between China and the West um, and upcoming elections, both in the United States and in other strategic countries like Taiwan, which are taking place in January. Um, and so I think in reflection of the past year of the Russian-Ukrainian war and in projection of these upcoming geopolitical events that will likely correlate with an increase in cyber activity, I, I think a lot of cyber insurers will try and, again, take further steps to find areas where they can limit their coverage and put caps on um the coverage that they'll do and, and other mitigating steps like that. Um, but in terms to the in terms of the latter part of the question about what companies can do, I mean certainly there's still a lot of benefits to cyber insurance even if they do have some of these uh, exclu exclusion clauses like war exclusion. And so for individual companies, it really comes down to determining what their risks are, uh, what industry they operate in, whether or not that's an industry that's uh, more or less likely to be targeted by various forms of cyber activity, whether it's cyber crime, state-sponsored cyber activity, even hacktivism, which again is a growing risk that we're seeing in the last year. And of course, beyond that, companies should be cognizant of the fact that having cyber insurance is not a sufficient cybersecurity um, strategy in and of itself. And so for those companies, even with cyber insurance, and for those companies, of course, without cyber insurance, they should, of course, be ensuring that they're integrating that kind of policy into a more comprehensive cybersecurity strategy that involves detection, mitigation, and response measures. Going back to earlier in the conversation, do you think that in the long term that the definition of like war will start to change to include cyber attacks that are like launched against a nation without any sort of physical aspect of war, um, just as cyber attacks become more like related to um, like our way of not our way, but like uh, a, potentially a nation's way of fighting? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Emma, and I think. It's important to note that while cyber attacks have been escalating in a lot of ways and becoming more costly and more disruptive uh, and more frequent by some measures, it's important to specify that a lot of th these, these major geopolitical players still have a lot of red lines of engagement that they're not willing to cross. And we're seeing this in the context of the Russian-Ukrainian war, where a lot of experts really predicted that Russia would wield cyber weapons very disruptively on a global scale, and some early indications pointed to that. For example, the Viasat satellite hack, which affected not only Ukraine in a major way, but also affected a number of wind turbines in Germany and had an outsized impact in various parts of Eastern Europe, as I recall. But aside from that hack, we've really seen Russia maintain a fair amount of restraint in the ways in which it wields cyber weapons. And 
it's not so much restraint within the context of Ukraine itself, where we've certainly seen a lot of disruptive cyber attacks, primarily through the use of data wiper malware. But outside of the Ukrainian war theater, it's only been very isolated incidences of, of sort of malign cyber activity. Sure, we've seen hacktivism by groups like Killnet that have incorporated distributed denial of service attacks, but those are more of a nuisance and a symbolic gesture than anything damaging. And while we have seen more recently some industrial control system wiper malwares come out from cybersecurity researchers, we're not seeing these actually be deployed. Um, recently, there was that big report about Chinese cyber espionage actors by the name Volt Typhoon hacking into a lot of U.S. critical infrastructure. And, and this, again, raised the fear of war and what a lot of, I think, cybersecurity researchers say about these incidences are countries like Russia, China, and even the United States, it's not as spoken about as often, but all of these countries are always trying to probe into one another's critical infrastructure for the sake of having and establishing persistent access that they would then presumably use in a case of heightened tensions. But that red line, I think, would really prevent any actual attacks on critical infrastructure through the use of cyber tools, unless the United States or the West entered into an actual declaration of war or something that looked similar to a war with either Russia or, or China. Well, thank you so much for that in-depth analysis, Ali. Absolutely. I hope that uh, made sense and answered your question thoroughly. For sure. It definitely did. Learn how geopolitical events like this could affect your business with Rain Worldview. Our flagship risk intelligence products provide clients with access to the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk management outcomes. Sign up at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening. Thank you.